Lord, we are so thankful for all that you do for us. You're so faithful to us. I mean, you, first you provide us salvation, but then you give us all that we need in life, that ocean full of blessings, as we sang earlier. And so we are thankful that we can be gathered together in the name of Christ because of what he's done for us. And now we get the joy of opening your book and reading something from you. What a wonderful gift it is. And so help us to give it our minds attention and our hearts affection as we listen to you speak. May it warm our hearts to you and drive us to serve you. May ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Philippians chapter 3 is where we're at. Philippians chapter 3. In this section that I, uh, verse 7 through 16 of Philippians 3, I've titled the gospel as transformational. It's kind of an overview of that. And uh, while we're moving into a new paragraph here in chapter 3, it, it's really still under that heading. The, the gospel changes the way that we view everything in life. It should. And if you say, I'm a Christian, but it really hasn't done that, then you better check out what it means to be a Christian. Because the gospel changes the way that you view life. Well, how does that happen? Well, initially, it's the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. And he changes the way that you view life. The way that you feel about life. Changes your desires and your behaviors. He does that. And we just are submitting and surrendering to him in that process. But it's God being so good to us. So I'm thankful for the gospel. How about you? There it is. like a big amen corner there. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so let me read a, a verse from uh, Acts 20. Uh, you don't need to turn there, just one verse. Where Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He doesn't think that he'll see them again. He knows that suffering awaits him when he gets back to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit had made that known to him. But he says in verse 24, But I, I do not count, account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Nothing else is of value to me, not in my own life, unless it fits into the category of fulfilling the ministry, the course, the, the race of ministry that God has given me to do. And his was very specific to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all different kinds of people. Jews, certainly. Gentiles, mostly. Finish the race. Press on to the end, is what he was saying, and, and he did that. You know, I, uh, recently, uh, we had the Olympics that was not attended by public and not as viewed by the public either, uh, for a variety of reasons, they say. But I, I watched some of the Olympics. Uh, Pastor Greg mentioned that a, a couple weeks ago, that he had done that. And, and I, I, like to, I still like to watch sports, especially when they're not professional an, uh, athletes that are crying for more money. I, I, I like competition, and I like watching it, and I like seeing people give it their all. And, and that's what's so striking about the Olympics. You know, you have all these people that, some of whom have been 
practicing their athleticism since they were three or four years old. You know, and others came to it later in life. But one thing they do is they keep on working hard toward a goal. And that goal first in their thinking is someday I want to go to the Olympics. And then above that, they're thinking I might actually receive a prize. That prize would be a bronze medal or a silver medal or a gold medal. They do all that they can to attain that goal, to reach that goal. They work hard day in and day out for years and years and years. And some of the stories that get told as you're viewing the Olympics are, are, are wonderful stories of about what people have persevered through in order to make it. Uh, in, in Alaska, of course, there was great joy over Lydia, Lydia Jacoby from Seward and uh, the gold medal that she won and the other medal that she won. And, uh, you know, and she worked hard at her sport, swimming, and such that even when the schools were closed down and she couldn't get in to train in the pool, she would go out in Resurrection Bay and train. I didn't even want to put my finger in Resurrection Bay. It's always cold. And yet she would go out and train and train and train. Why? The goal of making the Olympic team, the goal of then possibly winning a medal. I mean, just to be in the Olympics is pretty significant, but then to win a medal. And who knows, maybe a gold medal. You know, you see that a lot in sports, and Paul actually likes the metaphor of sports. I mean, you could say that about lots of different things. People train and work hard towards goals. It could be, you know, it, it, it could be a single person the goal is to find a spouse. I mean, that's the goal. They work hard at it, you know, and they might work hard at it if they're a believer they're in the church that they're part of. Well, what if there's not one there? They might connect with, you know, another group to see if there's someone there that they could connect with. Or they might even get on a Christian dating site. You know, why? Because they have this goal. I want to be married. Or it could be a vocational goal. People work hard at that, right? I mean, it's built into us in, in, as we're going through early years of school, or at least it used to. You ought to be thinking in terms of what do you want to be when you grow up. Not everyone wanted to be a fireman or a policeman. You know, it was, some people actually grew up wanting to be doctors or lawyers or Sports announcers. They knew they weren't any good at sports, but maybe they could announce sports. You know, any number of vocational goals. And, and they work hard at their schooling so they can advance to the next level. Maybe they can, you know, get, get uh, even free schooling. You know, some grants or that kind of thing. And, and, and boy, they go all the way through the school and then they finally get that diploma. You know, it's a master's or a doctorate you know, whatever it is. And uh, they're so excited because their goal has been reached. So it's, it's, it's kind of a cross life, not just with athletes, but Paul particularly likes the metaphor of athleticism, as he writes. And that's what we see in our text today. Uh, pressing toward the goal to gain the prize. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, you might not say, I don't see the athletic metaphor in there. Uh, Hopefully, as I go through the passage with you, you'll all see that that's exactly what he is using to make his point. And hopefully that you you saw that, you know, this is connected to what we already have been looking at in chapter 3. Paul's already written that his one main focus in life is to know Christ fully. With the culmination of that taking place when he entered into the presence of the Lord or at the resurrection, that was verses 7 through 11. So uh, he's, he stressed that a growing and personally intimate relationship with Christ was the direction of his life. It gave his life direction, and that was it. And that can only be fully realized, he, he makes it known, when he's in the presence of the Lord. Now in this section, verses 12 through 16, Paul actually makes some corrective statements in case there have been some who have misunderstood what he has written uh, as though he were saying that he had already reached the state of perfection in his knowledge and relationship with Christ. Hopefully you picked up on that as I read that. Not that I'm already perfect. I I haven't attained it yet, right? He makes some corrective statements. So Paul describes his earnest ambition by means uh, of a series of clauses in 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 that paragraph. Let me just kind of lay it out as it is laid out grammatically, and then we'll approach it a little differently. But there are two negative statements that he makes. At the beginning of verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm perfect. And then at the beginning of verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So there's two negative disclaimers, if you will, um, you know, showing... uh, He's not there yet. And then there are two positive statements as well. That's the end of verse 12, where he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then at the end of verse 13 and through 14, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I I press on toward the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you get these negative clauses and positive clauses that are all about pressing toward the goal to gain the, the prize. And then in verse 15 through 16, there's actually three short statements that he makes that encourages his readers uh, in their Christian growth with the end result that there'd be unity in what they believe. That's what he says at the very end in verse 15, uh, uh, or in 16 only. Let us hold true to what we have attained. He's really stressing that we all need to to think the same way. This has already been a focus in the book, hasn't it? Remember back in chapter 2? If there's any comfort in Christ and love in Christ and fellowship of the Spirit and all that, then think the same way and consider others as more important. It was all about unity and having the mind of Christ will bring about that unity. And so he's kind of saying the same thing, but in a different way. 
but you take all of these phrases together and these verses emphasize the importance of a believer's pressing toward the goal to gain the prize of the upward call that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as I'm looking at the passage, I'm not going to break it down that way, I see that there are four things that are required in pressing toward the goal to gain the prize that God will give to the faithful. Four things that are required. The first of those, if you're filling in your sermon insert there, it requires a proper awareness of our spiritual condition. It requires a a proper awareness of our spiritual condition. So, listen, Paul moves from the, the language of accounting. Remember, we covered that 7 through 11, gain, loss, assets, liabilities, one you know, everything's a loss compared to the one big gain of knowing Christ, being found in him, gaining him. So he moves from that language to that of an athletic metaphor. He's running a race, and he's not yet crossed the finish line and, he, and uh, gained the prize. He's got to keep moving forward until he finally finishes. The very thing that I read at, out of Acts 20. One thing I have in mind, I'm going to press on in the race of ministry that God has given me all the way to the end. And he's saying it here as well. So Paul begins this section again with this disclaimer. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Now why does he say this? Well, whether it was the result of the Jewish false teachers that he has already addressed, beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware where the concision or those who mutilate the flesh, you know, back in the beginning of chapter 3, whether it was because of them or because of some Gentile Gnostic infiltration, Gnosticism was uh, just starting out in the latter half of the first century, and it it was kind of a a spiritualist uh, religion. The big thing about it was that you could attain a certain level, and that would put you into the elite group of spiritual people and everyone else would be under you well so maybe that's part of the influence you know kind of the greek thing or maybe even greek dualism you know which says that everything that is immaterial or of the spirit is good and everything that is uh, material or flesh is bad it's not really clear he doesn't say but you know it it seems like he's addressing that some within the Philippian church may be mistakenly assuming that Paul is claiming to have reached the state of spiritual perfection, uh, with the implication that they too should, you know, reach that kind of spiritual perfection. And Paul actually counters such false claims with a forceful disclaimer concerning the false doctrine, here it is, of perfectionism. The false doctrine of perfectionism, which is like a sister to legalism. So the false doctrine of perfectionism existed then and it still exists today. You know, it's the teaching um, by some that believers can reach this state or a place of spiritual and moral perfection to such a degree that there's an eradication of any temptation to evil. That, you know, you no longer are tempted to sin. Not only do you not sin, but you're not even tempted to sin anymore. You can read some of this in books like um, 
Hannah Whitehall Smith's Hind's Feet on High Places. I mean, that was of writers in the 1800s. It became a pretty common uh, view, and it, it was, it's so wrong. And, and it's wrong in part because of what we read here. We see that it's wrong. So in this view, uh, an erroneous distinction is oftentimes made between sinning willfully and simply making mistakes. Isn't that our world? We want to dismiss our sin, and we say, ah, I made a mistake, or I misspoke. You know, I called you a jerk, but I, I just misspoke. You're not a jerk, really. You're something else worse than a jerk. But, you know, oftentimes we make excuses. It was a mistake. I, I wrote the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. I didn't mean to go 50 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. It was simply a mistake. A policeman's not buying it either right? So it, it's that kind of thinking. And, and, and Paul's teaching in these verses shows that, that even a spiritually mature person like himself must maintain a constant determination to, to focus on the goal of growing in their knowledge of Christ, gaining Christ, being found in him, as we have already seen in chapter 3. And that has to be done until the end, until we cross the finish line, whether that is at resurrection or at revelation or translation, the rapture. If, if you are of that mindset about that, that we get raptured out you know, before the tribulation. It doesn't matter when that happens. It's, some people are going to be caught up alive and some people are going to be caught up dead. But that, you know, it's the end, right? You, you stay faithful to the end. Now, apparently some of the Christians in, in Philippi were being influenced to think that Paul's claiming something different, that he had attained this spiritual, you know, position of perfection. And, and, and to be honest, it's not unlike what he addressed in the book of Corinthians. Uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where he addresses this... Nah, problem church, to say the least. They had many problems, and one of them was an over-realized eschatology. They thought they were already there. You know, even though they're here, they thought we've already reached the pinnacle. And we, we pick that up in chapter 4 and verse 8. Now, there's the verse I quoted earlier this morning. What do you have, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? They were boasting in themselves, not in Christ. Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Now, you can't see it. It doesn't identify it this way in the text. But that's sarcasm. They didn't have all that they want. They thought they did. And they, they thought they were all that, you know. And he says, without us, you have become kings. You can hear it just dripping with sarcasm. And, and, and I would that you did reign so that you might share the, uh, I might share the rule with you. And then he goes on. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as, as last of all men sentenced to to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. 
to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. And when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So the Corinthians, some of the Corinthians are like, we're all that. We've, we've reached an overrealized eschatology, perfectionism, right? God looks on us very specially. And, uh, and Paul says, yeah, that's not the case. That's, that's not the case. He's, he's correcting them. And so if, if some of the Philippian believers were thinking in a sim, uh, similar way, Paul wants to correct them, and, it sh- and what he writes here should be a help to them, but it should be a, right, a help to anyone who battles this false doctrine of perfectionism or, or akin to it, legalism, thinking you can be right with God just by being better than others, doing all the, the right things, and you'll be right with God. We've already spent a lot of time on that. So he's addressing that concern. And the question is, when he says, you know, that I've not uh, already obtained this or am already, per- uh, already perfect, what is it really that he is emphatically disclaiming? I mean, there have been a lot of different suggestions as to what it is, uh, as to Paul's meaning, but I think clearly we have to see it in the light of the context. What is it, Greg, that we always should pay attention to? Context, context that's right. Context. Well, what is the context? Uh, verses 7 through 11. Uh, uh, the surpassing worth of the value of knowing Christ the Lord, gaining him, uh, being found in him, knowing him fully, attaining to the resurrection it, it's what he's saying here is tied to that. Not that I've already obtained this or it. Well, what is this? What is it? What I've just said about knowing Christ, about gaining Christ, knowing him more fully each and every day. He said, I've not yet reached that point. I've not reached full knowledge of Christ. And, and, and so really what he is disclaiming is, I don't trust in my past. I don't trust in my past achievements where I've been since I've come to know Christ to this day. All the things that God has done in me and through me, I'm not trusting in that. I haven't obtained what I want, which is to know Christ fully, to know him absolutely. And, uh, and so he says, I've not yet obtained that. The word obtained is like, I haven't grabbed a hold of it. I haven't received that yet. And... Uh, One writer puts it this way. I thought it was so good. writer's name is Hawthorne. He says, As Paul's personal relationship with his risen Lord and exalted Lord was enriched, and this occurred while he was engaged in his apostolic ministry with its joys and trials, experiencing the power of his resurrection and sharing in Christ's sufferings. We just talked about that last week. So he came closer to his ultimate goal, that of being found completely in him or of knowing him perfectly. But... So long as he was in the body, that goal lay ahead, and he was not, he has not yet grasped it. This is Paul saying this, right? And then he adds to it, not only not already obtained it, I am not already perfect. Now, I would translate that a little bit different, not that I have already been perfected. It's a verb, not a noun. It's not a 
a state as much as, you know, a process. Most commentators agree, though, that by Paul using this Greek word teleao, how many of you have good memories? Pastor Greg covered the word telos or teleao a few weeks ago in in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is the word that he uses here, perfected, is how it's translated in our Bibles. Uh, But what Paul's doing here is he's taking over the language of the false teachers that are influencing the Philippians to think that you can reach a state of perfection in this life. That you can reach this, this state of no longer struggling with temptation and sin and so on. Now, the, this word, as Pastor Greg pointed out, teleao, or the, the, the noun would be telos, it has a wide range of meaning to complete, to bring to an end. I'm, I'm actually probably citing the same source that Greg used, just a lexicon, to bring to an end, to finish. Remember, Christ, as they hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. lestai. it's written in the perfect just like this is. Not that it, you know... He's saying, I haven't been perfected. Christ said, everything that's necessary for salvation has been done. It's finished. It's complete. Um, It means to accomplish something, to reach a goal. It's a term, actually, that was used in mystery religions, like Gnosticism, to refer to an initiate or a consecrate who was going through the process of training to become one of the elite, to move into the category of those that were perfected you know, lifted up above other people. It, it also, you know, came to be perfection in the moral sense, spiritual sense, emotional sense. Also, it was used as a reference to maturity. And that very word, while it's translated perfect here uh, in, in our text, when you get down to uh, verse 15, let those of us who think are mature, it's the same Greek word, mature, complete, perfected, so on. So one's a verb, one's a noun. doesn't matter. It's, a, it's the same meaning, and he's fighting this battle. But is he talking about maturity? Not that I've already become mature? I don't think so. I think Paul's a humble guy. You know, we saw that last week at the end of verse 11 when he says that I might somehow attain to the resurrection. Is like, I can't get over the fact that God saved me after all that I did against him. He was humble, but he was not a person who said, I'm not a, I'm not a mature person. You know, I'm, I'm really a, just an infant in Christ. No, he would never say that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to say to other people, follow my example, because I'm a mature person, right? So he's not talking about just maturity here. He's talking about this language that the false teachers were using, influencing people to think that they could reach a state of mm, spiritual perfection. And the false teachers claimed that they had reached that state, and Paul is saying, no, you haven't. None of you can, nor can I. Not in this light. And, and it's written in a not already have been perfected. It's written in a, in, in a perfect passive uh, sense, which means perfect, it, it's happened, and it's continuing on. Secondly, passive, it's being done to him, not done by him, which is kind of the flow of all what Paul writes, isn't it? It's not me, it's the Lord. <laughs> it's always the Lord. 
And, and, and yet when he says this, I've not already obtained it, and I'm not already perfected, I think what he's doing is he's summing up uh, all of his past accomplishments as one single whole. And, and, and so here's, here's a few verses for you to consider that that's what he's addressing. Paul understood that his knowledge of Christ was partial. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now I know in part. Then I will know even as I am known. I only know in part now. When I get to heaven, when I get in the presence of the Lord, then I'll know perfectly. As he knows me, I'll know him perfectly. And, and although Christ's uh, righteousness had been imputed to his account, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him and knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So although he had imputed righteousness, he still needed to be cleansed from all defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7.1. That's what he said. And though Christ's resurrection power was active in Paul's life, clearly. Well, it worked in his weaknesses, didn't it? In his weaknesses, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God's grace is sufficient and his power is perfected in my weaknesses. He knew he was still weak, even though he was mature. So through Christ's resurrection power, you know, it, it was working in him, but he said, but... You know, there are times I just, no, I'm so weak yet. I, I need to gain more of Christ. I need to be found more in him day in and day. I need to know him more fully. Paul had not yet arrived. That's what he says. I've not yet obtained it. So, pause with me just for a moment and consider this from our point of view. The significant of significance of each believer realizing that fully attaining or knowing Christ and being perfected does not occur until the day of resurrection cannot be overstated. Understanding that it can't be overstated. Pressing toward the goal to gain the prize begins with an awareness of where we presently are, and that is weak, needy, dependent, sinful, tempted. That's where we're at, right? All of us. Aren't we there? Yes. And, and so we, we have to think that way, understand that. It requires, really, what is required is this um, dissatisfaction with our present condition, right? We should not think, boy, I'm glad I got all of that over. I've made it. Now you've just fell deep into a pit of sin. Pride cometh before destruction. Haughty spirit before a fall, right? So we have to have a dissatisfaction for where we're at in our present condition with, with a desire to continue to grow in Christ to, all the way to the end, all the way to the end. There's a line in a Robin Hood movie, I think it was with the one with Kevin Costner. Or maybe it was, it was either Robin Hood or it was Braveheart, I can't remember. But the line was, basically it's like, are you going to be with me? And the one guy says, to the bloody end, all the way to the bloody end. Yeah, 
all the way to the end. So those who think that they've actually reached this spiritual perfection in some sense through some second act of grace, and that kind of goes with the view of this false doctrine, perfectionism, or this kind of legalism. It's like, well, I I had real problems after I became a believer, but at some point I decided I'm going to fully devote my life to Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know. Uh, I, I put my life on the altar, and I'm, you know, I'm not getting off of it, and I'm, I'm, I'm not conformed to the world anymore. I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind, and, and I, I, I prove what the will of God is each and every day, and I don't struggle with sin anymore. I don't, I don't even get tempted. That's kind of that view, the second act of grace, and, and then they see that they have no need to press toward the goal. That's the problem with that view. They become complacent. They become stagnant. They stay the same. And uh, such a view will keep them from actually pressing toward the goal of the prize that God wants to give to the faithful. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, okay? This would be one. Let's take a husband-wife relationship. If a husband thinks that he has attained, reached spiritual perfection in this sense of which we are talking, well, then he will think that he doesn't need to grow anymore in learning how to love his wife as Christ loved the church. (laughs) I love her perfectly. I always do. What's going to go along with that? If there are any problems in the marriage, who's the problem? Not the perfected one. The imperfect one, the wife. You could, by the way, you could reverse these roles. The wife thinks she's perfect, the husband's not. You can, you, you can see, can't you, that having that kind of view towards your own spiritual advancement, that it's going to have negative effects. I mean, you can only imagine the effects of that kind of thinking in a marriage. Or let's take another example. Let's take a person... You know, they really struggle with sexual temptation. Pretty common, more among men than women, but it affects both. And, you know, they struggle with it. There's, there's guilt when they fail, then they, you know, repent, and then it happens over and over and over and over and over. It's a, this guilt-shame uh, cycle. And then they get connected in a program or with a person, and their eyes just... Like, wow, what I have learned has totally changed my life. Now, can you imagine what's going to happen if they end up thinking, I'll never have a problem with sexual temptation again because I've made it. I'm at the top. I'm perfect in this area. Other things, not so much, but in this area, devil's gotten a hold on me, man. What's going to happen with that person? Failure. A fall is, is, is coming. And it could ruin not only his life, but his family's life. And you could, you could just take this with each and every area of our life. If we think that we've already been perfected, we are not going to be honoring the Lord. In fact, we're going to be ruining our own lives for the glory of the Lord will be hindered in us. So, how about you? Are you willing to take stock of where you are presently? And and this is something that we have to do day in, day out. 
I'm not there. I, Carol and I were talking the other, other day. It was it was a, a serious conversation? I don't know. Um, but it was, I, it might have been uh, something with me washing dishes or something like that, which I typically do. Or it was maybe communication or something. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I, that I don't struggle with that like I used to. And she says, yeah, me too. I mean, you've come so far from where you used to be in this area. And praise the Lord. But I've not come far enough. I've still got a ways to go. Take stock. Have a proper awareness of where you're at. Understand your weaknesses. Only when you understand that you are weak will you feel the power of God helping you through those weaknesses. If you think you are strong, you're not going to be needy and trusting and dependent on the Lord for his grace and mercy and his strength. The power of the resurrection being alive in you. So, that's the first thing. A proper awareness of our spiritual condition. By the way, I know some of you might be thinking, he's not going to make it through all four. I didn't think I was. Because I'm not perfected yet. Maybe when I'm perfected I'll be able to do four points in, a, in one sermon, but I've got a long way to go. And you say, there you go. I can get an amen out of you. Number two, it requires maximum effort to lay hold of the prize. That's the second part of verse 12. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So it's a contrast, isn't it? Not that I've already obtained or have become have been perfected, but in contrast, what I do is I keep pressing on, uh, you know, I, I, I want more, I want more, I need more. Genuine, genuine believers will not press toward the goal of spiritual perfection uh, unless they realize that they need to know more of Christ, right? I mean, that's what we've been saying. But a simple awareness of our present condition is actually not enough. I mean, that's a beginning point, but it's not enough. And this verse, this second part, makes that clear. There must be a diligent pursuit of Christ. The, the word, I don't know how all the translations have it, whether the, the word pursue is in any of them, in the ESV and some of the others, it's I press on. This Greek word dioko is, is kind of a strong t- term. It, it means to follow with haste. I mean, to get after it, right? It's to get after it. If you, I remember, uh, you know, times when I've been hunting and I've been walking behind someone and man, their legs are about four inches longer than mine and every step they're picking up space between me and them and I've got to pick up the base. I've got to pursue them. Otherwise, they're going to be gone and I'm going to be lost. That has happened to me once in my Pass. I got lost from everyone else, the other three people I was with. I had to be shooting my pistol off in the air to see if they could find me. You know, because I didn't press on. I didn't pursue them as I should have. And that's what Paul's saying. You've got to pursue it. You've got you to follow with haste. And, and, and it's understood. It's with an intensity of effort in order to catch up with. Or, and that could be, by the way, for friendly or unfriendly purposes as that word can be used. 
but there must be this diligent pursuit of Christ. There could be no half-hearted effort put into the spiritual walk. By the way, that means that the let go and let God, uh, you know, way of thinking is wrong. It's wrong. Yes, we must let God. We must submit to him, humble ourselves. God, I need you. But we must hang on, not let go. We must hang on to Christ. With every effort, we have to press on, pursue him. You know, we find in the New Testament, actually, uh, in Paul's letters primarily, that believers are to pursue several things. Same Greek word, dioko, or pursue, or press on, such as, I'll give you Bible references if you want to read them, but we're to pursue hospitality, Romans twelve thirteen. But I don't really like people. Doesn't matter, pursue hospitality. Uh, mutual peace. Romans fourteen nine, Hebrews twelve fourteen, first Peter three eleven. We are to pursue love, first Corinthians uh, uh, fourteen and verse one. We are to pursue doing good, first Thessalonians five fifteen, and righteousness and faith and holiness. We are to pursue these godly characters. That's in first Timothy six eleven, second Timothy. 2.22, and you can get any of these references from me afterwards if you didn't get them all down and you wanted to. So, and this is written in the present tense. That means it's ongoing, right? Keep pursuing. I keep pressing on, he says, and it's clearly strenuous. Now, there's somewhat of a difficulty with this whole phrase. I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. I think that King James says, I, I press on or I pursue uh, to apprehend even as I have been apprehended. It's like, well, those sound different to me. I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's kind of an awkward statement even in the Greek. It's kind of like, well... What, you know, what I do is I, I, I press on to obtain or to acquire or to apprehend or to catch. Just as I have been caught or obtained or apprehended or acquired by Christ, who's made me his own. It's kind of a, it's, English can't always, you know, do a direct relationship to the Greek text. So it's still the point is still the same. I press on to make it my own. What? What it? Knowing Christ fully. Being found in Christ completely day in and day out. Gaining Christ more and more each step of the way. You know, pursuing, pursuing, pursuing Christ more and more. Why? (laughs) Because that's what he did for me. Did you get that? That's what it says. I need to pursue him because he pursued me. Wow. And and this word, make it my own, you say word, that's four words. Actually, in Greek, it's just one word, but it's an intensive form of the same word that was used in the first print, not that I've already obtained. So this word intensifies it, and it has the sense of uh, to, to overtake or to seize or to catch and in this case, in a positive sense. So Paul was running 
spiritually to gain the, the very thing for which Christ Jesus had come after him. Now that is beautiful to me. I don't know. It, it ought to cause your heart to rejoice because he pursued you before you pursue him. Right? Well, what does that mean, though? I mean, to, to, you know, to gain him or apprehend him and as he's apprehended me. I, I think you can see it in another verse, Romans 8, verse 29, where it says, For those whom he foreknew, this is God, for those whom, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what I want to lay hold of. The image of the Son, that it might be imprinted on me. Right? God chose Paul. And God chose every believer, right? By, by God's grace, his call, we come to the gospel. And he, he, he called us and chose us and saved us with the purpose of having an intimate, personal relationship with him to develop us into people who look like Jesus to get that that's the point that's why God has done what he's done for you so that you'd look like his son the Lord Jesus Christ in essence the continual pursuit that Paul is addressing here is that the believers try to become more and more like Jesus each and every day all the way to the end and this is something that it just can't be fully realized in this life. It will only be realized in completion at the time when we enter into his presence. Because then we will be like him when we see him as he is. First John 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now, right now, we are the children of God. But it does not yet appear what we shall be. Because when I look at you, I don't see a completed view of Christ. And you don't see it in me either. I hope that you see Christ in me. But you're not seeing Christ in his fullness when you look at me. And I'm not seeing it in any of you either. But there is a day coming. There is a, a day coming where we'll see him. Actually, with our eyes, we will see him. And at that moment, at that moment, we'll become just like him just like him. God will complete what he started through a call, drawing us to repentance, to faith, to forgiveness, to becoming a child of God. He'll complete it all the way to the end. Just what Paul said in the first paragraph of this letter. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. May that day be soon, huh? It feels like it will be. I hope it is. But that would be more for my benefit than the lost, wouldn't it? I ought to be thinking of the lost too. Because the more I become like Christ, the more I can bring others to him. Because that's what Jesus did as he walked and talked with people. He drew the outcasts. He drew the sinners. He drew those that were miserable those on the outreaches of, you know, proper society. 
the sick and the lame. They came to him. And our world is filled with sick and lame people. Well, Jesus isn't here. Not physically, but he is here in us. So the more we look like Christ, the more we can draw people to him. Well, Lord, we are thankful for this passage as we kind of pause and slow down as we look at this section of Scripture. Lord, it becomes very convicting. Informative, yes. Encouraging on one hand, yes. Uh, because it, it's caused us to, again, look to you and, and all that you are and all that you do. You are awesome. But it's caused us to look at ourselves, too. And we're not. We're not awesome. We're not perfected. We haven't obtained yet spiritual perfection. No longer struggling with sin. No, no. We acknowledge that, Lord. We're not there we still fall short of your glory. But thank you that your, your sacrifice for us makes it so that we will continue to be changed by you so that we end up looking more and more like Christ. And then that final day will come when we'll step into your presence and the great transformation will be complete. Until that day, Lord, help us to, to be mindful of our weaknesses and our failures and, and to turn to you in repentance when needed and trust and dependency always. And help us to put all the, the effort that we can on our side. And we know that you are the one that does it all, and yet you want us engaged in it. So help us to pursue you with our whole heart, all our life, until the very end. So thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the food that we're going to eat and those that prepared it. Appreciate that so much. You using them to serve us and, and we're thankful for it. So be glorified as we spend time around the tables sharing the meal. Perhaps if we talk about this, that might help us. Just a dialogue about it could help us get it cemented, planted, embedded into our heart and souls. So we ask all of this in the name of our Savior. Amen.